How did a legendary Black newspaper change America? Brent Staples will join us to talk about his review of Eitan Michaeli's new book, The Defender. The media, newspapers in particular, were a kind of instrument of white supremacy in the United States. And the black newspapers in the first half of the 20th century fulfilled that role of allowing black people to see themselves. What makes con artists so persuasive and us so gullible? Maria Konnikova will be here to talk about her new book, The Confidence Game. All cons are about belief and they work so well and they're so rampant and they will always exist because we need to believe. It's a very hardwired human instinct. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Brent Staples joins us now to talk about his review of The Defender, how the legendary black newspaper changed America from the age of the Pullman Porters to the age of Obama by Eitan Michaeli. Brent, thanks for being here. Good to be here with you. You loved this book. Oh, I did. Absolutely. I think it's very interesting to look at the context in which a book about the black press appears. In the early part of the 20th century, for example, uh, in the southern newspapers in the United States when I was a little kid, those newspapers routinely denied black men and women the courtesy titles, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, they did this so that black people who appeared in newspapers could be identified at, by readers as black so that whatever testimony they gave could be ignored. There are many newspapers in the South when black people were mainly Southerners mm-hmm. uh, that had rules that no black likenesses could appear on the front page. And newspapers that accepted, for example, uh, birth announcements and death analysis for black people segregated them by race. And so the media, the the newspapers in particular, were a kind of instrument of white supremacy in the United States. And the black newspapers in the first half of the 20th century fulfilled that role of allowing black people to see themselves in print, to see their likenesses, to see their successes, to see... Uh, you know, black affluent people vacationing, traveling abroad, those kinds of things. So that's the context in which the Chicago Defender grows up as a powerful newspaper, black-owned newspaper in Chicago in the first half of the 20th century. Before we get into the Defender um, specifically, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that context. When did the black press in America start? Oh, the black press in America started in the second half of the 19th century by um, people like Frederick Douglass, and others who were advocating for um, for emancipation. Mm-hmm. T. Thomas Fortune, I think, who said initially, um, let us speak for ourselves. Right. Uh, because a lot of the voices of abolition were white. And so papers were found like Freedom's Journal in New York. So the papers grew out of that that urge to, for black, of black people to speak for themselves in the interest of emancipation. And what were the challenges to the black press in terms of access to politicians, access to the White House, and distribution? Distribution was a huge problem in the early part of the 20th century because, in fact, as I said, most black people were Southerners. Right. And so if you're publishing a newspaper that, uh, first of all, is critical of Southern segregation, that has an anti-lynching campaign urging black people to leave the South and come to places outside of the Jim Crow range. It was a kind of a stealth operation. The Chicago Defender in particular had struck a very interesting relationship with Pullman porters who worked on sleeper cars and trains. And they would carry bales of these newspapers into the South and drop them off with secret distributors who would send them 
to the barbershops, churches, beauty parlors, and so on. Often this is done surreptitiously because several southern states tried to outlaw circulation of papers like the Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier because they saw them as subversive, because they encouraged people to speak up for their rights, Mm -hmm. and it was dangerous. There are many cases where people uh, in the South who may have written under assumed names for black newspapers, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe found out or bought out and killed and beaten. And the founder of The Defender made the Great Migration one of his main causes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and urged people to come specifically to Chicago. Yeah, Robert S. Abbott came out of Georgia, I believe, and uh, came to Chicago in the Columbian Exposition. uh, And he came there to see, uh, to listen to Frederick Douglass talk. And I Mm -hmm. think he was really taken with Chicago and ended up going back to the South and coming back to establish Defender. Defender was created in the kitchen of a rooming house on the south side of Chicago. Was it the first black newspaper in Chicago? I'm not sure. Um, it, it was the most successful. Mm-hmm. These are small weekly newspapers that people were doing in their houses sometimes. And there were lots of them around, you know, of which there are no longer extant copies, for example. He started this newspaper in this rooming house, and it was a two-cent paper. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, he went around to get advertised. He carried it around and gradually grew it in the rooming house. Um, and he had the idea that uh, if black labor was to get out of the South, that black people would be bettered if black labor moved out of the South. And this idea of him hailing black people to come North, uh, Chicago in particular, was, it was hugely successful. Uh, as a matter of fact, it became too successful too quickly and ended up being a kind of friction between black workers and white workers and so on. It had its problems, but it was enormously successful. It grew the readership of the Defender, too, because these people became, they had been seeing its anti-lynching campaign. They had been seeing the Abbott call to go north and get away from Jim Crow. And so they had an affinity for it. And as black workers moved moved north and got unionized jobs and so on, uh, they had money for subscriptions. So the paper grew enormously, as did the Pittsburgh Courier in the East and the Baltimore African-American in Baltimore. One of the other main uh, early causes uh, for the Chicago Defender that they took up was military segregation. Um, You opened your review with an anecdote about FDR, first uh, with the average number of of news conferences that he held a year, which is astonishing when you contrast it with the numbers today. Hmm. But he would not allow the black press to come to his news conferences. Yes. FDR was sworn in in 1933. At that very moment, black papers were approaching the zenith of their power in the United States. By the end of the 30s, they were getting very powerful. In the 40s, they, they were over the top. The high point of them was probably 1945. In 1933, uh, Roosevelt is sworn in. He begins to you know, get black support. And the papers begin almost the moment he's sworn in saying, we want admission to the White House press corps. They were turned down. And they repeated those requests every year for the next 11 years. Had they ever gotten it? Were there no, ever black reporters no, but in the lot? No, they hadn't. But there were some instances. Woodrow Wilson, I've met with a delegation of black reporters at least twice, uh, basically to insult them, I believe. The thing was, Roosevelt was expanding press access so dramatically. Roosevelt held an average of 84 presidential press conferences a year. That's 14 times the number of press conferences held by the great communicator Ronald Reagan. 
mm-hmm. three to four times the output of Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, or Barack Obama. And that's just not the only thing. Roosevelt has those press conferences, and then he has the fireside chats, right, which became famous right. for those. And then he has these other broadcasts that he's doing. Then he's meeting with Walter Winchell, and he's meeting with obscure technical journals. He's letting in every white person and his, his brother. Mm-hmm. And, his, and so this was kind of galling to black newspapers that were approaching the, the height of their power. And they had, of course, a big beef. Their big beef was segregation in the military. Oftentimes, military segregation is described in an innocuous way. So, you know, black soldiers was, you know, housed over here. White soldiers were housed over there. No, it was not quite like that. Black military housing was often substandard housing um, built, for example, on swamp land in the South. Mm-hmm. Military bases in the South were often had segregated drinking fountains. There was a, a drinking fountain for black soldiers, and there would be a separate drinking fountain for white soldiers and for the German prisoners of war. And they were overseen often by Southern yes. uh, military. And the other thing was true that the, the Pentagon decided to put black soldiers under the command of white Southerners, whom they, whom they said understood, quote, unquote, black people better. So it was a miserable operation. There were segregated movie theaters on bases. There were segregated bus services on bases, substandard housing for black reporters, and the actual blood bank was segregated. Blood plasma and the blood bank, thanks to the Roosevelt administration, was segregated by race. And the sort of irony of that was that blood banking was pioneered by a black doctor who had done the science that Mm. allowed us to collect and preserve large amounts of blood plasma. So these issues were playing in the black press all the time. Roosevelt himself wanted a kind of complicity of the press, and he wanted sort of uncritical patriotism. But the black newspapers had to say to their readers, we urge you to support the war, even though the war effort is you know, basically racist. We have to choose between Hitler and our own government. At the same time, we're going to tell you about all the policies that the government is using in the army to insult you as a people. One of them is black soldiers crossing the South, you know, couldn't eat in segregated restaurants, or sometimes weren't even fed in train stations. Mm-hmm. I've been on the editorial board a long time, and I've written, I wrote a piece about this, like, about the time of Band of Brothers, I think, the famous HBO series. I wrote a column about segregation, talked a little bit about uh, how black people were set aside in the army and humiliated on a daily basis. And a veteran, a World War II veteran wrote in a very sad and moving letter saying, a guy from New York City, a white guy from New York City, he writes a letter saying he goes to the South, he's on his way to his military bases and he stops in a restaurant to eat and he looks in and German prisoners of war are sitting at the table with a nice tablecloth and clean, shining silverware. Mm -hmm. The black soldiers are sitting out in the yard of the restaurant with food handed out the back door because they're not permitted to come in and sit at tables. And he said that crystallized for him how evil segregation had been Mm -hmm. in the military. Um, We did publish that letter, by the way, in the Times. That kind of news uh, was essential to the black readership of the time. And and the, the papers, the black papers, rose on that kind of news. At their height, what was the readership of the Defender like? Uh, I think at its height, the Defender was probably a quarter million. Mm-hmm. I think so. At their height combined, I think um, black papers had something like 1.7 million readers. That doesn't count the pass-along rate. 
in the mid-40s, fully three-quarters of households in the United States said in a survey that they consulted a black newspaper before they made a decision. So this is a maximum penetration. Yeah. This is the kind of penetration that any newspaper today would envy in any demographic. Right. But you have to understand at that time, as I was saying earlier, you know, to read a white paper was to be insulted constantly. And you didn't see yourself in those papers. And the, the myth that somehow the white papers were objective, of course, when they were, in fact, towing the racist line. So basically, these papers were really essential to black people. And it was, it was not just about, you know, discrimination news. If you were um, sort of in the black middle class in Nashville, mm-hmm. in Harlem, or in uh, Cleveland, you could read, for example, and you could see... The, uh, the sort of annual football games between the historically black colleges and universities among them because you know, they didn't play white schools and play right. one another. And then these big events, you could see, for example, what, those, what the scores of those events, those events were and what socialites had come to those events and what they were wearing, you know, who was wearing the furs, who was wearing the minks, what have you. And also you could see the, the women's literary clubs in Nashville and Chicago and other places. You know, when a poet came to town or a novelist came to town, they threw these big teas and soirees in Washington. So you had a view of black society, even that you don't even have today. Right. It, was, it was invisible elsewhere right. in the media. Mm-hmm. If the 40s were the the peak of um, the black newspapers in general and of the the Chicago Defender, what led to the decline? Because that's not part of the most recent decline of newspapers having to do with technology. But Mm -hmm. but what led to the falling off in terms of readership? In a very real sense, black newspapers were victims of their own success. Mm -hmm. In 1948, uh, one of the most fascinating parts of this book is, is uh, the part that shows Harry Truman groping his way toward the executive order that finally ended segregation in the armed forces. That development, the end of really hardcore Jim Crow segregation, meant the beginning of the end for black newspapers. It was a precipitous fall off mm-hmm. in the 1950s in circulation. FDR, as you should know, had many policies that were Uh, meant to bring the country out of the Depression. And one of them, he had a a sort of a tax policy that encouraged businesses to place newspaper ads. You know, there were a finite number of newspapers, and so some of those businesses had to advertise in black newspapers, like the Courier, which were national, and they Mm -hmm. chose the big national newspapers. Um, And the Courier at some point overtook the uh, Defender in circulation. So those policies lapsed. After the war, so some of that advertising went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other part of it was these newspapers, I think, the Defender and McCauley gets into some of this. These newspapers for a time had aspirations that they could be sort of general interest newspapers and attract right readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chicago Defender, for example, had a period in which fully half the news is it printed was what they call white news. Eton McKielly, we should say, is white, yeah, the author yeah, of the book. Yeah. They couldn't get white readers at a time when the, when the public you know, wasn't that interested in, mm-hmm. in this issue. And frankly, the, the tenet of the time was highly racist. So that was a gamble. Some of the papers tried in the 50s to become less, you know, less hard-edged in the interest of getting a wider readership. And that diluted, I think, their base. Mm-hmm. In the 1960s, for example... At the start of the, I think probably the point would begin with the Emmett Till killing, lynching in 1955. Mm-hmm. My friend David Howerstam, who passed on several years ago, may he rest in peace, once called uh, 
the Emmett Till uh, funeral and killing, the first big media event of the civil rights movement. You know the story, a 14-year-old yes. boy goes to the South and is, and is murdered for allegedly wolf-whistling at a white woman. That becomes a galvanizing event for the civil rights movement. White newspapers sent delegations, another friend of mine, I'll tell you how old I'm getting, um, <laughs> Murray Kempton, um, who was working Newsday when I knew him here, went South to cover that for one of the, uh, the New York papers. So they sent big delegations South. So you have this counterforce. The black press is trying to appeal a little bit more to white readers. Hardcore segregation in the media is subsiding somewhat. The white press gets interested in black stories. Okay, mm-hmm. So it begins to draw readers away from uh, the black newspapers, which I say in the, in the review were the papers that had held the black middle class through the American Dark Ages. The Pittsburgh Courier, which is the big rival of Chicago Defender, James Baldwin, bless his heart, said that the Pittsburgh Courier was the highest class paper of them all, had a literary temperament. The Courier had at one point 26 columnists. It was the template for the modern opinion journalism. Who else wrote for them? There was a famous guy, a famous uh, self-taught historian named J.A. Rogers, Mm -hmm. who wrote a column, a weekly column, I think, called Your History, about black history. He went on to write several volumes, a book called, uh, I think it's called Sex and Race in America, um, Man to Superman. And uh, I just went recently to see Hamilton on Broadway. J.A. Rogers actually wrote a pamphlet under the title The Five Black Presidents about secret an- secret black ancestry of mm-hmm. white presidents. And there's a little side thing there on Alexander Hamilton, who uh, Rogers insisted was black. Yeah. They had an Asian guy writing for them. They had a guy named George Shiler, who was a famous black conservative writing out of the Pittsburgh Courier. A murderer's row of great opinion writers. That paper in 1966 almost dropped off the map, virtually ceased publication. Hmm. Because they couldn't earn any money. The saying stack that the owner of the Defender bought it. We should say that the Defender is still around. I think it has a, a weekly circulation of yes, about 17,000. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming they've they've had this face the same difficulties that other newspapers have faced. Um, yeah, they did. But they, in some sense, they faced them earlier. Uh, as I said, these forces coming together in the 50s and the 60s. And then one of the really big blows to them in the 1960s was uh, historically... Black reporters and photographers could not work for white newspapers. The advent of the race riots in the 1960s changed that. White newspapers in all of the cities, New York City included, began to hire black reporters. To go and report on the riots. Yes. And so, in fact, what was going on is these papers couldn't afford to meet the same salaries as white newspapers, never could. And many of black people who were talented journalists worked in black newspapers as a kind of mission, as a calling. And some there are some who came to work in white newspapers, didn't like it, and went back. The brain drain that happened in the 1960s was kind of the real death knell of these things. The Defender was a daily newspaper for a long time, and as its fortunes faded, it went back to being a weekly, which it is today. Well, I could sit here and talk about newspapers uh, with you forever. Um, Brent, thank you so much for this. Brent Staples is a member of our editorial board. This week, he reviews The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America by Eton Michaeli. Brent, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
Alexandra Alter is here now with news from the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So you have a mystery, a very disturbing mystery. Yes, there has been a mysterious disappearance in Hong Kong. Um, several bookstore employees and a publisher have disappeared, and they uh, are connected to this publishing house called Mighty Current Media, which publishes political books about China and these books are popular with Chinese visitors from the mainland. They are banned in China. So this is a very alarming development because for the most part, Hong Kong has been the place where there's been more freedom of speech. Um, writers and publishers can release books that are critical of the government in China without repercussions. And so some people are concerned that while there's still no news of why these employees and the publisher have disappeared, many are concerned that they're being held in mainland China. And this could have widespread repercussions for freedom of speech and expression. It could actually frighten writers and publishers and bookstore owners. In fact, another bookstore in Hong Kong called Page One has removed politically sensitive books from its shelves in response to this, just to prevent um, anything similar from happening to their employees. Wow. Can mainland Chinese writers, do they publish with this Hong Kong publisher or others like it when they can't publish in China? Or does this publisher only publish books by Hong Kong residents or international writers? I think it's countries. a lot of people in diaspora because I think if you were living in the mainland and you published something critical of the government, even through Hong Kong, uh, if word got out, they might be subject to repercussions. Of course, China has a very poor record with human rights and several authors are in jail, have been imprisoned. The other thing is, you know, even international authors who want to get their books about China to Chinese readers through the censors without going through the heavy censorship that happens when you publish a book in China like to publish their books in Hong Kong. And they assume that, you know, people that want to read it in Chinese can find it there in some way or sometimes pirated copies make it into the mainland. So it kind of cuts off another avenue for information to get into China and get to Chinese readers. So it's an important outlet for writers overseas to publish their works in Chinese without any censorship. It's also very common for Chinese writers to use pen names when they're publishing books about sensitive subjects. So I'm sure there's a lot of mainland China writers who are releasing books through these publishing houses under pen names. And were there books that were especially sensitive or that they think may have triggered this that had come out recently? Yes. In fact, Mighty Current Media publishes um, a lot of political books. Some of them are um, are serious volumes. Others are sort of gossipy. Um, the ones that uh, are very popular, in fact, with visitors from the mainland, with tourists, are uh, sort of salacious, about, often about the sex lives of government officials in China, about their mistresses, things like that. So those books have certainly, you know, raised flags as far as possible reasons for why they might have been targeted. How can they investigate the disappearances? I mean, Hong Kong is sort of part of China, but not quite part of China. Who is looking into this? The Hong Kong police are investigating at this point and don't have much information. Um, it doesn't seem to have risen to the level of an international incident yet, although the Chinese foreign minister did release a statement to reporters saying that he didn't say anything about Mr. Lee's whereabouts, but he told people to refrain from, quote, groundless speculation. So have they put in any protections into place with this uh, for the publishing house and, and 
the bookstore in question? No, I don't. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, we have reporters on the on the ground there who are looking into it. It got a little more mysterious earlier this week when one of the missing men, Lee Bo, faxed a letter to the bookstore staff saying that he had gone to China voluntarily and was quote cooperating with certain parties in an investigation. And after that, his wife actually withdrew her report that he had gone missing, according to the Hong Kong police and various news reports. So there's still questions about people's whereabouts and why, why they disappeared. No one is really connected it yet to the Chinese government. That's very distressing. All yes. right. Thank you, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Maria Konnikova is here now to talk about her new book, The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It, Every time. Why we fall for it dot, dot, dot every time. Rhea, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having All me. All right. So why did you decide to write a book about con artists? Well, um, I've always been fascinated by the criminal mind and how criminals think. But I think that this particular book, um, the true origin story is I was watching House of Games, uh, the David Mamet film, and he's fascinated by con artists. But the thing about House of Games is that the woman who falls for this huge con is a PhD in psychology. She's this really sophisticated, smart person who thinks she's in on it and ends up being a victim. And after seeing that movie, I thought, huh, you know, that's not normally how I see victims. And also, has anyone ever explored how really how people like that can become marks and right. can can be, you know, so so incredibly gullible from an outside perspective? Right. And I realized that that book didn't exist. Okay. So, so like looking at all the different kinds of criminals out there, what's different about the con artist from your say average, you know, killer or thief? Well, I think. David Moore put it best um, back in 1940 in his book, The Big Con, where he called them the aristocrats of crime. So if there's a certain hierarchy of criminals, they come at the top because oftentimes they don't actually commit a crime. And so they're really, really hard to catch because what they do is they get you to trust them and then you do it for them. So they don't they don't break into your house and steal your money. So the victim you, is complicit. Exa- exactly. You you willingly give it to them. You willingly kind of sign on to be conned. And so oftentimes it's really, really difficult to prosecute. And so a lot of these people get off free. There was that story recently of the psychic. Yes, I read that. Um, and I have some psychics in the book as well. The stories to me that are the most interesting in terms of the psychics are the really, really intelligent people. I mean, the guy um, I think that you're talking about, he was an investment banker, kind of Wall Street guy who you would think would really see through people. You'd think that he kind of does minor cons on on a daily level in some way. And yet, when we're at a very emotionally vulnerable spot in our lives, we become people who go to not one psychic, but two, and end up giving them all our money. Is it that at the heart of a really good con, there's something that we want to believe? Absolutely. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's the fact that all cons are about belief. And they work so well, and they're so rampant, and they will always exist because we need to believe. It's a very hardwired human instinct, this need for the world to make sense, this need for some sort of deeper meaning. It need not be spiritual. It can be meaning in a lot of different ways. But I think that's what con artists really tap into. You mentioned the David Mamet. Um, there's also so much literature around con artists, films. You think about The Grifters, the yes. Stephen Frears film. Why is literature, why are we so fascinated by the idea of con artists? I think it's because on some level, 
we can all, even though we don't want to admit it, we can all see ourselves as the victims if it's done well. And we want to understand why people fall for it so that we don't become the victims. So we say, oh, that could have been me, but let me explore it. And then it can't be. Of course, it doesn't work that way. Is it also because... The uh, you know a good con artist is really a storyteller. Absolutely, they're the best storytellers. I think that con artists would be beautiful novelists mm-hmm. um, if they chose a different profession because they know so well how to engage your emotion, how to engage your empathy, how to engage your interest, how to craft the perfect narrative so that you are with them every single step of the way. Long cons take a long time. That's why they're called long cons. Sometimes they're built over a month, even years in some cases, with huge payoffs. And people really buy into the narratives because they're so incredibly well-crafted. Did you look at literary representations of con artists sort of going way back? And is there sort of some ancient Roman or Greek text <laughs> that, that that is sort of the first literary con artist? Or is it in the Bible? Like, where does this, well, I when think does this date to? If you think about the Bible, there are definitely con artists in the Bible. The Leah Rachel replacement have, you know, have one daughter and replace her with another daughter and try to trick someone that way. I mention it briefly in the book. The first book that really devotes itself, the first novel that really devotes itself to con artists that I could find was Melville's The Confidence Man. Mm -hmm. And that was his last book. And people haven't really read it, I think unfairly, although it is hard going, but it's really just a totally fascinating exploration of this con artist. It's not op- as long as Moby Dick. Right? It's not as long as Moby <laughs> Dick. This is this is very true. He operates aboard a steamship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was actually quite common. I mean, if you think about um, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, mm-hmm. we've got some con artists right there, um, also on steamships. Have you ever been conned? I don't know is the real answer, because I think the best con artists make you feel like you haven't been conned. You just think, oh, bad luck. So I lost some money. Next time will be better. And I think there's no better illustration of that than how many people are repeat victims. Mm -hmm. So how many people end up falling for even the exact same con, not once, but twice, sometimes three times. How does that happen? Do you have an example of that in the book? I do have an example of that in the book. I have multiple examples of that in the book. Um, There was this one guy, Frank Norfleet, who basically became the victim of a very famous type of con where he invested, he thought he was investing in the stock market. Really, they were out to fleece him and he was going to be giving his own money and getting fake money in return. Um, The magic wallet scam. What ended up happening was he really thought that they were unlucky and that the stock markets had gone against them and that he just lost this money. And so he went back and he got the rest of his savings, borrowed money from his brother. I mean, just totally mortgaged his reputation. And this was a guy who owns a ranch in Texas who's really savvy, who has worked his whole life to build up this nest egg, which he now loses. Um, And only after he lost it the second time did he realize these guys are con artists. So it was the same guy who did the same Same guys, scam. same scam. And he just gave them more money because he didn't believe the first time. He trusted them too much. He thought, right. you know, these are people like me. One of the things that, you know, one of the con artists did was he said he was a fellow Mason, so part of the Masonic lodges. And mm-hmm. he, that really gave him credibility. That's what a lot of con artists do. They put themselves in the same community as you. Who becomes a con artist? I mean, are these sociopaths? Are these psychopaths? Are they just good liars? What's the opportunists? Who who are they? Some of them are psychopaths. Um, I talk about the dark triad of traits, um, psychopathy, uh, Machiavellianism, which is 
like Machiavelli's Prince, the ability to persuade people for your own ends, um, and narcissism. So thinking that you're God's gift to man and that you deserve everything. And a lot of times they exhibit one or all or some combination of those traits because these are people who think that the world owes them something, and so they're just going to get it. Oftentimes they're really, really intelligent. And so you think about some of the con artists here who, you know, they pretend to be doctors, they mm -hmm. pretend to be professors, they pretend to be all these exalted things, and they could have, they're very smart, they could have done it themselves, but they want the shortcut. They don't want to do the work. Mm -hmm. They want instead to get that reputation and to get that adulation. They think that this is the easy way, and a lot of them love it. They feel so powerful. What a feeling, what a rush of power that is. To get away with to, it. To know that people believe you and that you're fooling them and that you're going to get away with it and that you are going to create stories that change people's lives mm -hmm. and that you have that sort of power of playing God in a certain way. There's got to be a little narcissism in there. Oh, absolutely. I think narcissism is a huge part of it. So you're a trained psychologist? I'm an experimental psychologist. Experimental so psychologist. PhD in psychology, but cognitive psychology. As a trained <laughs> experimental psychologist, are there things that you know to look out for when you're, you know, for, if you suspect that you're being conned, are there signs? Are there, you know, there's we talk about tells with mm -hmm. a with a liar yeah. that that there's certain kind of giveaways, and they're usually not true. Everything that we think of as tells of lying aren't tells of lying. The best liars we can't spot. That's something I learned as a psychologist. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I learned to really look out for is there really is no such thing as the exception to the rule. So if it seems too good to be true, it is. It absolutely is. And it's so we want to believe it when it's happening to us. You know, there's no such thing as the exception to the rule. But I actually earned this lucky break. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it all makes sense. You know, I've been working hard for this. It makes sense that I finally got my opportunity. And so that's a huge red flag. When things really are going really, really well, we should become more skeptical, not less. But the natural human impulse is to become less skeptical and to say, finally, I finally I am have getting... been recognized <laughs> exactly. for my... Exactly. I deserve it. <laughs> did you interview con artists? I did. Um, I interviewed a lot of con artists for the book and victims. So one of them, his name is Ken Perenni. He was one of the people who let me use his name. A lot of the people in the book are anonymous. <laughs> they want um, to go forward at some they, future... They want to continue, yeah. yes. And he was an art forger. And he, for many, many years didn't just create forgeries, but actually built a market of Butterworth paintings. He ramped them up to the point where people really wanted this. So he actually created the need, and then he fed that need. And he had his paintings, as he told me with pride, on the cover of Sotheby's catalogs. Wow. He did really well for himself. When was um, this? Not that long ago. This was in the 70s. He was just so gleeful. He lives in Florida now, and he does legitimate forgeries. So he's allowed to still do it, um, mm -hmm. but he just can't sign it as if it's by the artist. He leaves the signature off or signs it as if it's by him. But the FBI let him go. Um, he was never charged. No one knows why. His theory is that too many prominent individuals would be too embarrassed because um, the auction houses, a lot of them had built a reputation on this 1800s American art. It would be too embarrassing for them. I don't know that that's true. Because right. I don't think had, the FBI really cares right, about the embarrassment. Right. So I'm not sure. But he, I asked him if he felt any remorse whatsoever. And he just, he was so gleeful. You should have just seen him. He was so proud of what he did. And he said, you know what? 
sucks to be them. If they like my art, if they think it's the original, then that's their problem, not mine. I'm very good at what I do. So he must have been, sounds like, eager to talk to you. Oh, he was so eager. A lot of them are really, really eager to talk to To show off? Yeah, that's the narcissism speaking. They want to tell you how wonderful they are. They really want you to see what they do. And a lot of them talk to me even though they were still operating which is kind of crazy, right? But they they obviously were anonymous, and I respected that. And at some of them, I didn't know their full names. They would give me a first name. I had no way of tracking who they actually were. But it's a fascinating thing where they're doing something illegal. Most criminals don't want to talk to you. Right. These guys really do because... It's that recognition. The um, art uh, forgery seems uh, very old school, um, very uh, 1970s, although I'm sure it still goes on today. But you would think that um, technology has offered new opportunities for con artists. Absolutely. Um, Frank Abagnale, who people will know from Catch Me If You Can, was asked recently, not by me, but he was giving this talk. And someone asked him, would you be able to pull this off today, all of your impostering? And he said, are you kidding? He laughed. He said it would be a million times easier. Think about how many crumbs you leave every single time you go online. Social media is just this treasure trove. It shows what you like, where you are if you check in places, Mm -hmm. um, who your friends are, who your family is, all of these things about you that con artists can then use. And think about how many friend requests you might get on a network from someone you don't know, but they're friends with someone you do know, so you accept it. That's one thing I learned writing this book. Never, ever accept a friend request from someone you don't actually know. So don't, know exactly try, to, who they don't are. try to friend Maria <laughs> Konnikova. Um, I feel like you could combine this book with your previous book on Sherlock Holmes yes. and become a mastermind con artist. So be warned. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. The book, again, is The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time by Maria Konnikova. Greg Coles is here now with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. So there's nothing new. Yeah, third week in a row, uh, nothing new in hardcover fiction or nonfiction. It's uh, really in the holiday doldrums. One interesting thing, though, looking at those lists is that there are some books that have returned to the list after, uh, in some cases, a very long absence. So I'm, I'm thinking that people probably went to the stores to buy them as Christmas presents. If you look on the fiction list, Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff returns to the list. The last time it was there was October 18th. I uh, think that's the Obama effect. Oh, maybe so. There, there you go. Obama said it was one of his favorite books of the year. Uh, it's uh, now back on the list at number 14. Over in nonfiction, um, you have Binge by Tyler Oakley. Uh, it was last on the list over a month ago, December 13th. And here it is, boom, at number five. So it's uh, really coming back in a big way. Helen McDonald's H is for Hawk, which has not been on the list since last May, uh, is back on the list at number 10. That, that of, made a lot of best of lists at the inc- end of the year. Including our uh, best of list at the end of the year. I'm thinking people are probably buying that one as a Christmas present. Yeah, uh, I think we could read the tea leaves here behind various books on the list. Yeah, have... also interesting, um, Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See, which of course has been on the list forever, it's uh, in its 87th week now, is back in the number one spot, a position it last held last February, February 1st, 2015. So really almost a year since that's been at number one. And again, probably uh, people going out and buying it as a Christmas present for those readers who have not gotten to it yet, those three of them. 
And at number two, <laughs> The Girl on the Train, which I'm thinking is back up there because all the details about the film adaptation are coming out now, uh, which is the film is coming out in October. Yeah, and that one will be uh, on the list for officially a year as of next week. It's uh, assuming it still stays right, on. Unless something <laughs> very dramatic happens. Yeah, but it's uh, it's in its 51st week this week. Uh, if you look over at the paperback trade fiction list, you'll see that movies are, in fact, a big driver of book sales right now. Uh, number one is The Martian by Andy Weir. That is the basis of that movie. Number two is The Revenant by Michael Punk or Punky the basis for the um, Leonardo DiCaprio movie of the same name. And number three is Colm Toybean's Brooklyn, uh, which is also the basis of that movie. So so a lot of moviegoers deciding to catch up with the original source material there. Hey, I'm reading a book based on a movie. Are you? Billy Miserable. <laughs> but it's true, I swear. Um, all right. Thanks, Greg. Sure. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.